Welcome to NREI's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at NREIOnline.com. Let's jump right into this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. Let's dive into this week's story. Hello, David. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing fantastic. Living the dream, baby. Living the dream. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's been quite the... uh... I don't know how many 17 19 months since we've started quarantining i don't know yeah something like that it's around there it's, it's blurs day as we all say at this point yeah um so it, what what is today's podcast about so it's thought you know for all the recent episodes basically since march i've been bringing in guests for conversations thought it might just be good this week to take a break from that and We've had a couple of things that we've published. We, we did a, a large supplement um, that we do every year called the Meteor Outlook, and then right around the same time with that, uh, one of the you know the largest commercial real estate brokerage firm in the country, CBRE, also put out their Meteor Market Report. So I just thought it would be I wanted to take some time just to talk about you know take a step back away from some of the, like the, the the detailed conversation with guests and just like get a you know kind of recap a, a sense from the industry where we're at you know at this point in 2020 after living through everything we've been living through all right so i'm sure there's a lot to cover here david but what do we start with today so i thought you know just taking a second to to the, you know the highest at the very highest level like we're, we're you know we're, we're just we're, we're getting a lot of the numbers now for the second quarter at, at the highest level the we saw the devastating numbers about the u.s economy like shrinking mm-hmm. something like nearly 40 percent gdp shrinking about 40 percent on an annualized basis meaning it shrunk about 10 percent for the quarter so that's kind of like the 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 backdrop in which the entire commercial real estate universe is operating in, in response to that we have this massive macroeconomic shock that's been partially offset uh, by government stimulus, and I think that that's similar similar story that's played out in in the rest of the world. And then, just as a result of the shutdowns and the reopenings and the changes in behavior, what we really are seeing is how the outlook is now sorting itself out mm-hmm. for all of the major property types and the alternative ones. So, just to I mean, I think to 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 start with the strongest i think at this and i think you know it's it's, i think it's a good time to stop to do this just because you know march the world came to a halt after weeks of that we've had this very piecemeal and starting and stopping of reopening and figuring out what businesses can open and what can and who can work and who can work from home for longer and who can't and what we needed to try to understand is uh, what that was, yeah, what that was going to mean for real estate and what that was going to mean for businesses, who was going to be able to survive, what's that, and then what, what was that going to mean for who's occupying what kind of spaces. Mm-hmm. So I think now what we understand, and even though we don't really know the full runway out of the situation we're in, we could pretty safely say that, that you know, and the industrial sector is kind of the, the the leading performer of all the major commercial real estate property types. Multifamily has held up surprisingly well. 
the office sector is kind of a big question mark. Mm -hmm. Retail is in pretty bad shape. And then when you get into the alternatives, it varies a lot. You know, hotels are not, are also in really bad shape. Seniors housing is a little mixed. Student housing is a little mixed, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's kind of like where we're at. Like, I, I think, you know, the just to start with the, you know, the most positive is this fact that because of how we've shifted shifted the way that, and, and this isn't just a US phenomenon, but a global phenomenon, the way that we've now shifted how we're consuming and how we need to order things and what we're ordering, it's, it's just put even more demand on having a highly efficient and, a fu and functional global logistics chain. And that's actually meant that, you know, the existing industrial pr properties are all at pretty top occupancies and it's creating new demands because of some of the new challenges because of even i think one of the big issues that manufacturers faced was uh, or people that were now doing a lot more direct to consumer business is that they sold out of inventories and then and because of the our, our logistics logistic system had been set up in such a way of like you know this just in time model of like being able to get so you didn't have stuff sitting in warehouses you got it from the wherever it was being produced to the consumer as, as efficiently as possible that was all, all set up on a pre-covid kind of pattern of consumption suddenly with new demands heightened demands new things being ordered and things needing to go to new places there, it created issues for some companies being able to get stuff to c c customers very fast. Mm -hmm. That creates a bad customer experience. So now what everybody is like trying to figure out going forward is maybe we need some more warehousing space again. Maybe we don't need to just do this just in time system. Maybe we, we need to have, you know, because the last thing you want to do is make, is make um, customers unhappy if they're expecting something and they want some, and you know, people have expectations to get it pretty quickly, even amid COVID. And so I think all of that is creating this very huge demand for more industrial space, more warehouse space, more efficient logistics. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't know what to think about that because any company that has to keep a larger stock on hand you know, mm -hmm. this is a black swan event. It's a pandemic. It's it's not something that we are, well, we're, we're certainly hoping it doesn't happen again anytime soon, but how long before the next one, right? So right. is it going to be 15 years? Is it going to be 10 years? Is it going to be a year? Now, I'm not talking about a, a round two of this. I'm talking about a whole another issue because if people do or if companies do change kind of the way they have to deal with product on hand, then I'm I can only assume that product prices have to go up. I mean, if they have to pay extra space for warehouse, if they have to do whatever there, I mean, that's, they have to pass that cost on to the consumer. So, you know, what if we don't have another pandemic, hopefully crossing fingers for another 15 to 20 years, are they going to continue to utilize warehouses worth of space? I mean, let's take toilet paper, for example, obviously there was a huge run people, you know, there, there was rationing, there's all sorts of different things going on because it's not like the toilet paper manufacturers had warehouses and warehouses and warehouses full of toilet paper just in case, you know, a bad spell at a, a local restaurant hit or <laughs> a pandemic, right? Yeah, I don't I don't know how that would be solved. Dave, don't don't you think that the 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 cost would be an issue? Yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be an interesting process because the the exact dynamic that you're talking about is the reason I think we went to the the reason the just in time 
model became so dominant was because you wanted to have this efficient, efficient chain and you wanted to, to make sure the products were, were not sitting in mm -hmm. warehouses for, you know, long periods of time. So you didn't have to pay warehousing costs. If you can reduce that kind of cost, you can get stuff from wherever it's being produced to the end of the line as efficiently as possible, keep uh, as efficiently as possible, keep it moving, get it through the logistics chain. That's what everyone's been striving for. Mm -hmm. But I think the dynamic that's happened is like the cost of, and I, I think, you know, maybe I don't want to like just hedge, but I think the answer is probably going to be a little bit different uh, depending on the kind, the kind of product you're talking about or the company you're talking about. But for some of these companies, leaving a bad taste in the customer's mouth around, well, this thing took too long to get to me, so I'm going to go to a competitor mm -hmm. in the future. Like avoiding that is probably worth some additional investment in in this additional kind of warehousing um, that they're talking about doing. It's also a question in terms of the costs for manufacturers or whoever else we're talking about that that's, that's part of the logistics chain is how many markets actually have the capacity for more warehouse space to be built. Mm. Um, that's, that's also a real question, I think, going forward. There's already been a tremendous amount of warehouse space added every year in this country and internationally for the past decade i mean hundreds of millions of square feet of space now we're just talking about potentially even greater demand for it if there are this idea of having some inventory image you know the capacity to carry some inventory in a warehouse just in case mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. then this question of how much do you need how much space do you need? And then, you know, so I, I think it is going to like, this is, I think the story that's, that we're going to be following now for the next 12 to 24 months, just to see how the way that the, the new demands and pressures that the way that we're living now is placed on the logistics chain, how much of that is going to uh, keep going even after we maybe aren't in this kind of crisis period, but you know, are some of these, uh, patterns going to stay the same or some of the ways people are ordering things now going to stay the same and then the other kind of wild card here dovetails with the retail sector is that at some retail centers i think as we talked about in a, in a recent episode they're looking at taking landlords are looking at you know empty sears or empty you know this empty sp big box space that's being created by the bloodbath in the retail space mm -hmm. and turning some of that into part of into logistics you know fulfillment order of fulfillment or logistics space too so there's this idea that even some of this order fulfillment will not come out of new real estate but a repurposing of retail gotcha. or a combination of a, of a retail store that's also a fulfillment center that, that's going to be part of this transformation got it yeah interesting yeah we'll see see how that plays out now you said that the the multifamily section really uh did better than most people thought how so yeah so i think this was you know i think there were major concerns naturally when millions of people are losing their jobs mm -hmm. uh, how you know how are people going to people be able to pay the rent i mean that was the very natural assumption and and question that people 
had. And so they thought like, well, multifamily will probably take a hit just because, you know, if you're looking at elevated unemployment, yeah, that's going to be a problem. The reality is that, and then we're recording this at a moment where we're actually, you know, we're at a, a potential turning point around this precisely because the thing that has now that actually was uh, helped sustain a good chunk of the multifamily market was the extended unemployment benefits mm-hmm. and the eviction moratoriums. So, but it, you know, it's, uh, uh, so there were, um, well, I, I mean, the, the eviction moratoriums didn't really help the multifamily sector. It, it helped be able to stay in their homes and tr- try to buy them more time. But the extended unemployment benefits actually did mean that a lot more people were able to pay rent than anybody assumed was going to be possible mm-hmm. um, back when uh, we shut everything down in March. Yeah. So I think like, you know, very early on industry groups like the National Multi-Housing Council and as well as some data providers very quickly set up an infrastructure to try to measure how much rent was, was being collected and to, to, to get a sense right away. Well, you know, like when we got to April 1st and May 1st, as like the first, you know, these huge waves of people were being on hitting the unemployment rolls, well, how much rent are you collecting? And then what they were finding was actually, oh, you know, 90, 95% of people are still, are, of, of the, our units are still, people are still paying their rent. Mm-hmm. And that was a, it held up far better than I, than we were anticipating going in. And it, and it, and it turned out, oh, right, I guess actually this, this thing we did, like that the government did of, supplementing state unemployment benefits with $600 a week, as well as extending the amount of time people could be on unemployment was, most importantly, it was, it helped people who needed that help get through this period. But the multifamily sector was also a beneficiary of that because, you know, landlords were able to collect their rents in ways that they did not think they would be able to. So, and then, you know, coming out of this, it's also created I think there's reasons. So now we are at this period where we're in the middle of waiting for Congress and just, you know the Senate Republicans to to figure out what they want what they want to come up with and and then how is that going to be reconciled with the House bill that was already passed and how are they going to get the White House to sign on and all this stuff is unfortunately I think from a lot of people's perspective this is like taking place now after those the initial package has already expired. So we're like six days past that deadline as you and I were talk, are talking and mm-hmm. it's still unclear when any kind of new rescue package is going to be finalized. So now we're, so we already do have a disruption in the, there are, it's already at least a week and who knows how much longer of time where these, unex, these extended benefits don't exist. So, what this will mean then for multifamily rents in for the rest of the year, I think is a big question. So that, that will be a downward pressure. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, I think what a lot of people anticipate is that even, I mean, I think, well, for one thing, a lot of people are assuming that the worst won't happen, that that there will be some kind of extended unemployment. So that will help sustain multifamily rents. But then also overall, this period is just going to create more long-term demand for rental housing and, le- and maybe less people buying single-family homes, at least for a couple of years. And then for what people want out of those apartments, it may mean people who are in a decent financial shape are willing to maybe pay for, maybe they want a bigger apartment now mm-hmm. uh, because they're just like getting used to this reality of, 
at least working some some of the time from home. So wanting a place, you know, the place that you live to be able to do that comfortably. Yeah, I mean, I could see that for sure. It'll be, again, there's so many what ifs about working from home uh, with all these different companies. And and I'm, I'm really curious about how many companies are going to be trying to, to move locations because where they're at currently is just now way too big for them as far as they have way too many offices and they're going to implement working from home, shared workspaces, whatever that looks like, that could save them a ton on their real estate footprint. And that will mean a lot of change for, for people in their homes or apartments or, or wherever they're working. Yeah, that, that'll be interesting. Now, retail, and, and this is kind of switching gears a little bit, but retail, you said, is suffering. And, yeah, in fact, use the quote bloodbath, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard not to, yeah. you know, see what's going on with the number of chains that have filed for bankruptcy, the number of chains beyond that who have announced store closings. There are estimates at this point that we could see something perhaps up to 100,000 stores close for, for the, by the end of 2020, which is, Jeez. I don't know, I think like four or five times than what we would normally see in a year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, recent years have been pretty bad for store closings. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about that. Uh, you know, retail is, is it's not, it didn't come into this period on a particularly strong footing. It was already going through a bit of a reckoning with those same dynamics of e-commerce and, you know, just changing tastes and changing people's uh, comfort levels with, with being able to buy stuff and buying more types of things online. So retail was, your physical retail was already in trouble. And now you have COVID just coming in and Retailers ever struggling that then had to shut down their stores for two months. You know, that, that was just like a death blow. Yeah. You know, so others are like now trying to find their way back or at least muddle through and we'll see what happens. Some of, you know, of the many, I, th I mean, there's probably two dozen retailers that have filed for chapter 11. A few of those are liquidating for good. A few of the others are trying to just restructure their debt and come back. You know, everyone is rebounding their real estate strategies and their numbers of stores. But then at the end of the day, what does that mean for, you know, the retail owners? That's not good. Mm -hmm. um, if you have, you know, the, the, the thing we were just talking about in terms of multifamily owners being able to actually collecting a much, a very high percentage of their rents during this period, that has definitely not been the case for retail owners. Do you look at some of their, reports and yeah it's upwards of 50 percent of their of you know in some months up, upwards 50 percent of their rent has not been collected maybe more depending on the kind of property they're doing obviously grocery rank anchor necessity retail kind of centers they're doing better because those stores never close those tenants are strong even some of those you know depending on who the inline tenants are maybe a lot of them were still open too so they were able to do okay but regional malls, I mean, you know, regional malls were shut down for a while. Some of them in New York, they still are shut down. Like they, you know, they, they did not, they have not allowed the malls to reopen here mm -hmm. as they have in some other places. So there's a lot of uh, potential for, you know, there's, there's talk of a couple of like real companies that have been institutions in the regional mall ownership space of maybe not making it through this, you know, potentially having to liquidate or you know or at least file for chapter 11 so it's just it's uh 
it's rough and i think nobody foresees that coming back and especially on top of that when you think about we talked about if the economy is kind of limping along that always hurts consumption in general when you then throw in covid that hurts it even more so i don't know if anybody foresees retail bouncing back very robustly anytime soon yeah that's tough and, and like we were talking about before, David, we've got, you know, the office sector, you know, a lot of companies may be looking to downsize because of being able to work at home and so on and so forth. So what do you see there? I think the, the overall consensus is there's just a lot of question marks over office. It's not as dire as retail, but you, you are already seeing and you're going to see corporations rethinking their office occupation strategies and that is going to include allowing a lot more flexibility around people working from home consolidation of office you know maybe rather than having a bunch of small offices uh in various parts of the country doing more of a regional hub model Mm -hmm. larger office space lower density but that's partially facilitated by the fact that like you a a chunk of your workforce is 100 percent remote and then for people, and then like you, we now have this, maybe we'll have a hub where when people need to come in for group meetings or, yeah. you know, any kind of semi, you know, events like like that, they can, they could just go to the regional office, but for on their day to day, they may not be in the office anymore. So I think it's not going to be a situation where we're like seeing companies, at least for many companies switch to like a permanent work from home model. I don't think, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, you know, there was a lot of like, I feel like we went through some phases with this where like when everyone was first working from home, everyone's like, Hey, this is actually not too bad. <laughs> and like, this is great. Maybe we should just do this permanently. Then I think it got a little bit old. And I think also <laughs> people discovered some of the limitations of it, which is companies or types of work that's very team-based. It becomes very difficult to sustain that if you're never together. Mm-hmm. Um, for onboarding employees, it's extremely difficult to train people and to make them feel culturally part of a team if you're never you know if you don't actually have that time to be with them one-on-one or in the group so there are some real areas where like this is like i think like the reality is there's been like a you know splash of cold water on this idea that like maybe we don't need offices anymore i think right now companies are being generally very cautious i know like in in new york city office offices we, we Technically, we've been allowed to go back to offices for a while. I know very, very few companies that have. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them are waiting um, until at least Labor Day before starting to bring people back. But I think long term, they would like to, but there's still just a lot of caution. And I think so, yes, then going forward, what is that going to mean for how much office space is occupied? Who's occupying it? What does it look like? One of the things that we, before COVID, we'd been moving towards everyone having open offices and pretty dense offices. There's been a gradual decline in the amount of square footage per employee in an office space. So that's going to go back a little bit because even when, you know, as, as we go back, we're not going to go back to the same density. Mm-hmm. So there's some countervailing forces too. So even like if a company may not bring all of its employees back, it still may need the same amount of space because it doesn't want to cram all its employees in the same amount of space that it had them before. Yeah. So, uh, um, but I think, you know, you want one of the, you want a signal on like the future of, of office space. I mean, Facebook just signed, signed this uh, 
gigantic, like a million square foot lease in New York, like last week. So, you know, even like, you know, if you think that like tech companies who have been very at the forefront of saying people are keeping their workforces at home, still believes pretty strongly, obviously, in the future of office space. So I think that's kind of a signal for what, you know, what to expect more broadly. So I think the end of the day is we're just going to see more of a flexible working model for offices. So they will exist. They won't be as dense as before. Maybe companies will have fewer offices than they did before. And this is not the end of the office. Yeah. And I mean, we have the technology and the ability to do so many different things. I mean, obviously, we're, we've been talking about working from home. But even if a company says, you know what, we're, we're going to do an, you know, 50% working from home, meaning, you know, when you work in teams, you're going to, this team will be in the office, you've got a shared workspace that has, you know, everything spread out a little bit, but you have docking stations, right? I mean, every, most mm-hmm. companies will have docking stations, everybody can come in, put their laptop into a docking station that then works on mutual monitors that anybody can use because anybody can use that same docking station. You have that team atmosphere for a week and then that team works from home for the next week and a different team comes in, uses that exact same space. That also gives the, you know, the company the the weekend to do a huge deep cleaning to, you know, mm-hmm. make sure everything's, you know, sanitary and all that jazz in addition to all the cleaning they do during the week, I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to, to do it, but I, the one thing I didn't consider was, like you said, maybe spreading employees out a little bit, you know, that, that maybe they'll be using the same amount of space, just not having them all in little tiny cubicles or in little tiny work areas that they're crammed in there together. So yeah, it'll be interesting. Again, we can speculate all we want, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens over the next, you know, six, 12, you know, 24 months. Yeah. Now I know that you it's, want, it's, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I, I think we do have like, we've got kind of two phases. We have, you know, how we use the office through the rest of COVID. And mm-hmm. then we have, what does it look like after that? Yeah. So yep. um, I think we're, so I think those are the two periods we have to look towards for the office sector. All right. And I know you wanted to touch on the alternative space today as well. Yeah, just, you know, the, you know, we talk, just talked about kind of did the highlights from the four major food groups. Then if we look at the, you know, the alternative sector probably still covers about 12 to 15 to 20, maybe 15% of, of the commercial real estate universe. By that, we're talking about hotels, data centers, student housing, seniors housing. I'm not going to go into depth on all of those. All of this stuff is touched on, I think, like I talked about in, in both the, the the gallery we did based on CBRE's report, but more importantly in the in 2020 mid-year outlook that we published, which has um, insights from something like over more than 40 firms, and it covers every single property type, including just about all these alternative uh, sectors. But just not a big surprise, hotels are in really bad shape and Mm -hmm. that's not going to change until we have travel and that's not going to change until people feel safe to travel obviously so no business you know no group travel no no big business travel none of that stuff is going to happen until people feel safe to do that so until that happens hotels are going to limp along data centers great doing great Mm. (laughs) partly because of all these other dynamics we're talking about we're doing everything online we're doing everything remotely creating more and more and more demand for data centers yeah seniors housing probably not terribly surprising given the realities of how COVID has played out 
is dealing with some issues um, yeah. and dealing with having to, you know, going forward, figuring out how to manage those facilities better, more safely, make people feel safe again about when they when they need to have someone in a nursing home or assisted living feeling safe to do that again. I think right now there's a definite real measured hesitancy for, for people to, to, to want to put loved ones in, in those kind of uh, places until mm-hmm. they feel like it's safe again. So I think that that's going to be a process. Student housing surprisingly is holding up pretty well, which seems counterintuitive because, you know, universities are not all, you know, are, are either doing blended models or not bringing students back right away. But what the off-campus student housing, you know, private off-campus student housing operators, you know, the people we're talking about, what, what they're finding is that students, even if they're not going to be back in the classroom, they want to be close to the campus. So mm-hmm. they're just going to do their digital learning from that from the, from the student housing rather than staying home. Yeah, they want to be, which I mean, we'll see what that happens with that. You know, for because it means people are going to be partying and socializing all that other stuff so some of the safety measures that you would think you'd gain by not having in-person classing is now it's going to be mitigated by the fact that the students are still around and yeah. hanging out with each other <laughs> yeah so um you know so it's going to be interesting fall but from the real estate perspective it means student housing apartments are going to be occupied and collecting rents surprisingly there enough. you go and then Self-storage, I guess another one I mentioned, they're doing fine as well. You know, they tend, self-storage tends to be a fairly resistant industry just because there's, in general, people like, no matter what's kind of happening, people like, it, it can create a need for self. If you need to move, you need to pack up your dorm, you need to, you know, downsize, whatever. Mm-hmm. There's always like, it, it seems like no matter what's happening in the economy, it can create some demand for self-storage. Yeah. Yep. Always going to need a place for stuff, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Speaking of stuff, we covered a ton of stuff today, David. uh, Thank you so much. Any closing thoughts for today? No, just, you know, I I did my best to try to synthesize what a lot of really smart people and have been doing research on Mm -hmm. and writing about. And so I don't know if I did it all justice, but I would just recommend if like, you know, people want deeper insights on any of the stuff you know they could look at that mid-year market report that we posted as well as the mid-year outlook it's a it's in a magazine format it's like 60 pages so mm-hmm. it's all you can download it you can read it online but it's got you know all these submissions from companies around the industry around the country that i think are really it's really worth folks diving into yeah well you know trying to condense a book into a 30-minute podcast you did great because <laughs> I mean there's there's so much in that article I've looked at it 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 is robust I yeah, it's I think it's over 60 pages for sure but just so much good information so again David thank you so much for the update and uh, great job today thank you you I bet hope you're uh, hanging in there oh yeah no problem over here <laughs> and I want to thank you the listening audience for tuning in and listening to the common area podcast with David Bodemer if you have not subscribed to the podcast yet please click the subscribe now button below This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at NREI, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back in two weeks for all the stories that matter to you. We'll talk to you soon. 
Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of NREI or Informa. The content has been made available for information and educational purposes only.